0: Today, we're going to begin um, a new series. Uh, We're going to to begin a series of studies uh, in what is called the Apostles' Creed. Now, this creed is the most universally accepted affirmation of the basic beliefs that have united Christians throughout the world and throughout the history of the church, both Catholic and Protestant. In its present form, the Apostles' Creed is dated no later than the fourth century. And here's here's the significance of this, is that often for us in non-denominational, evangelical, Western American church settings, the creeds are pretty much ignored. In fact, I would say that not until I began to study them for myself Uh, not that long ago, uh, did I even really know the significance of their content and the importance of them uh, for the church. Uh, And I've often, and I, you know, I came up and when I got saved at 28, I came into the Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, We didn't talk about the creeds. You know, there was any, we're leery of anything that wasn't uh, expositional preaching. And so uh, there was, I, I kind of had this view that creeds were Catholic things or Eastern Orthodox things, but that's not True. It's actually something that's been held tenaciously by both the Protestant and Catholic Church. In fact, if you were to read even uh, a work as significant as Calvin's Institutes, Uh, he does a whole section on an interpretation of the Apostles' Creed as well as Martin Luther. Uh, It has been held to uh, by the church universally, and this is important for us. And I believe uh, that as we uh, look at the Apostles' Creed uh, over the next 14 weeks, the reason we're doing this is not because the apostles created this creed, but because it's, it's a, the most concise summary of the apostles' teachings in regards to a Trinitarian faith. And I think that a lot of Christians have a hard time articulating the basic components of what it is that we believe as followers of Jesus. And this is why the creed, it's a confession of faith. Uh, that that was meant for the church to declare together as the body of Christ. And so we're going to do something that that we haven't done before, uh, and I I think there's a lot of power in it, but we're going to every week as we study the creed, and we are going to, don't worry, we are going to anchor it fully in Scripture and and show just how biblical it is. Uh, But every week at the beginning, we're going to read the creed out loud together. So I want you to read this creed, Uh, the Apostles' Creed with me out loud. This is a proclamation of the basic tenets of the Christian faith as held by the church since the church formed in the upper room. Okay? So let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, it wasn't so bad, was it? You know, there are two lines within uh, the Apostles' Creed that often uh, create confusion uh, for, uh, I think, modern Christians uh, in the West. And, the, and that, those two lines are, he descended into hell. I'm not going to give any input into that until we get to that, but we're going to do a whole teaching on that because there's great significance for it, that, us in that statement. And there's a reason why it's in the Creed. Uh, As I've studied it, I've come to see why it's there. The second statement that often confuses people or kind of messes with our vocabulary is, um, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy, what, Catholic Church. Uh, I want us to put away our idea of Catholic versus Protestant, because Catholic just simply means the true Christian church of all times and all places. It means universal. It means the big C church. So a couple other things that I'd like to say about the Creed is that uh, one thing that's been said about the Apostles' Creed and the reason that I was drawn to it over the Nicene Creed, which I love as well, uh, but I, I think that the Apostles' Creed is marked by sublime simplicity, unsurpassable brevity, beautiful order, and liturgical solemnity. I agree with that statement so fully. The Apostles' Creed helps us to establish the boundaries of faith that separate orthodoxy from heresy and emphasizes for us and this is really key it emphasizes for us that to believe is to belong which opens up a really interesting question which is who is the i in the creed and the i uh, is, is important for us to understand because the I is the body of Christ. Notice we just as a community, as the body of Christ, we read that together as one voice, many members, but one body. And that I is, is, is the body of Christ and it captures what I would call the communal voice of the church. When we say the creed, we are not just expressing our own views, or our own priorities, we locate ourselves as a part of that community that transcends time and place. And I think that that's very important for us. Uh, so this is not merely a summary of Christian teaching, uh, but it is a solemn pledge of allegiance to the living God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's more than just, it's more than just teaching. Uh, it's more than just a summary of what it is we believe, but it's also our pledge of allegiance to that belief. And I think that that is really important for us to comprehend. Okay, today we're going to consider just the opening statement, I believe in God. And I want to start with a quote from Frederick Buechner. Now, Frederick Buechner is a Presbyterian minister and author, novelist. Uh, And he wrote this really great book called Wishful Thinking, The the Doubter's ABCs. And in it, he gives a definition of faith that I thought was really helpful because I want us to think about the multifacets of faith uh, that we find within the scripture. Uh, And he says this, he says, faith is better understood as a verb than a noun, as a process than a possession. It is on again and off again rather than once and for all. Faith is not being sure where you're going, but going anyway. It's a journey without maps. I think that that's very profound. I, when I think about the words of Paul Tillich, who said that, that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but it's actually a part of faith. I think that's very true for many of us. And when we hear that statement from Frederick Buechner, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there are seasons uh, where our faith, the, the intensity of our faith ebbs and flows. Uh, There are times where we find ourselves in the shade of his hand. I've never been one who's lacked faith in the reality of who Jesus Christ is, but I have at times lacked faith in God's plan uh, for my life, his calling. I've lacked faith at times in regards to proclaiming Jesus to those around me. Uh, And I think that that this is important for us to understand the component of faith uh, really as a verb, as a process more than a possession, And I think it actually is summed up most profoundly in Mark 9.24, which I would argue is the most honest prayer in Scripture, uh, when Jesus was uh, confronted by a father of a a young boy who's demon-possessed, and the father is pleading with Jesus to heal the boy, to cast the demon out. And Jesus says, if you believe, all things are possible. And the man gave what I believe should be the beginning of all of our prayers, which is, I believe, help my unbelief. Belief is a complex concept that carries with it many facets. And we cannot afford, I would argue, to have a truncated vision of faith. And so what I want us to do is to look at Scripture today to fill out our understanding of this first statement in the Creed. And we're going to consider five facets of faith. Faith as assent, faith as trust, Faith as confession, faith as obedience, and faith as gift, or as a gift. So let's begin with faith as assent. If you look behind me, you see that there are two verses up here uh, that I, I placed. That one of them is the is the one verse in the New Testament that actually gives us a definition. Uh, a partial definition, at least, of what faith is. And it's in Hebrews 11.1. And it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Notice the lack of solidity uh, in those statements. It's the assurance, I'm sure, of something that is yet to actually happen, something in the future. It's the hope. Uh, And then the conviction of things not seen. I believe it, even though I can't, what, prove it. Now, the writer of Hebrews is, of course, talking about our faith in the living God as he has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. But we could apply this verse uh, to any kind of faith, and let us just be reminded that we all live by faith. There, it is an impossibility to verify everything that is. We all live by faith. In fact, I could apply this Hebrews 11, one verse to the very way that I lived in my 20s, because... I had, I had assurance of things hoped for. I wanted to be a rock star and I was convinced I was good enough to be one. <laughs> and the conviction of things not seen. I imagined myself on the cover of Rolling Stone because I knew I would be on the cover of Rolling Stone. Well, let me just ask the question. Do you remember that issue? It was, it was out really, it was gone as fast as it came. It never came. And my point is this is that faith is only as good as the object of our faith. Faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith. Look at Hebrews 11, verse six, because faith at its most basic level is to simply believe something is true. It's an assent. It's an intellectual assent. I believe it. I apprehend it maybe more than I comprehend it. But look at Hebrews 11, verse six, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. So it's a necessary reality for the follower of Jesus. But this is what I want to draw your attention to. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that what? He exists. That he exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Faith as an ascent says something like this. I believe that God exists. And this is the starting point, for we can't talk about what God is like, which is the the heartbeat of the creed, unless we first believe that he's actually there. The creed assumes that we believe that. Augustine once said that if you can't understand, believe, and then you will understand. And I would argue that it's impossible Uh, And people talked about our faith as Christians being a reasonable faith. I would agree with that. It's not blind faith. Um, And I would also argue that we believe only because God has first revealed himself to us. God is a revealing God. Uh, He is a God who meets us in our brokenness. He makes himself known to us through his son. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But here's the thing is that it begins with a simple ascent. I believe that God exists. But the question that I would have for you is, is that enough? Because for many of you, that's exactly how you define faith. And I would say that that was what my faith was for the first year uh, when I first began that journey uh, uh, to a God who had already sought me out uh, through the work of his son is the first year was really an intellectual ascent. I came to believe that Jesus really was everything that he said he was. I believe that he was the son of God. I believe that somehow, mysteriously, he carried in himself the brokenness of humanity. I believe that he died on the cross, uh, being judged in my place uh, as both judge and the judged. I believe that he conquered death in sin, in the dominions of darkness. And I believe that on the third day he rose from the dead and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he sent his Holy Spirit to those who placed their faith in him. I believed it intellectually, but it did not change my life because faith as ascent is not enough. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Faith, if it just stays as assent, is no better than saying, I believe in aliens. It's no better than saying, I believe in Bigfoot. Because faith merely as an assent does not change anything. It's the beginning point. We need to believe that God is there. But Scripture declares faith as something much more. And I would say that the way that Scripture defines faith most of the time is faith as Trust. Now, there's a preposition that is continually used in the New Testament to define our relationship as believers to Jesus Christ. And and it's the little word, and it is with incredible significance, the preposition in, that we are in Christ Jesus, that those who abide in me will produce fruit, (laughs) that we are to put our faith in Christ. And I think that this speaks to what scripture is getting at when it speaks about what is faith or what it means to say, I believe. Uh, because I think another way that you could, actually, uh, you could actually translate the Latin of the Apostles' Creed is um, from, I believe, you could say, I am committed. Because faith, according to Scripture, is a disposition toward God that allows God the right to be God in and through our lives. And I think that this is an important distinction. Yes, faith at its most basic level is an assent; It's the acknowledgement of the existence of something or the belief in existence in something. But it is not enough. Saving faith is a total dependence upon the person of Jesus. As A.W. Tozer puts it in the beginning of The Pursuit of God, he says that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Remember what I said? Faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith. I could put my faith in my career of music, but it only broke my heart. And I think that this is the thing that we need to understand uh, today as we think about what it means to believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you just believe that he is there. In fact, I could even quote to you, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's got to be more than what the demons believe. They're absolutely orthodox, probably more orthodox than you and I. But faith is trust, is what is what the scripture is after. In fact, look, look with me at Proverbs 3, verses five through six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That verse right there gives us insight into the default setting of the human heart in its fallen state is that our natural tendency is to trust in our own desires, in our own hopes, in our own dreams. The natural default setting of the human heart is to take control of our own lives, to be our own gods. And this is why my intellectual ascent brought no joy and no transformation to my life. In fact, I remember Darcy was completely put off by my so called Christianity, because she saw me talk about my belief in Jesus, but she saw no evidence of Jesus in and through me because I had not submitted myself to him. When we think about faith as a disposition of trust toward an object that allows that object to do something for you, the illustration that I always use, and I've used many times, and I'll use it again because it's helpful, is that it's like putting faith in an airplane what do you do for an airplane? When you say, I believe in an airplane, you're not saying I believe they exist. You're saying that I believe that if I get on an airplane, it'll take me from point A to point B. And everyone on the plane gets from the same place to the same place. (laughs) They go from the same place and they end up at the same place. But the amount of faith in the object, which is the plane, uh, defines the enjoyment of the trip. (laughs) And I think that that's really important for us. In fact, I, there's a speaker that I, I really want to have come and speak at Door of Hope, and we looked online to contact them, and, and, uh, and it said specifically, uh, prefer speaking engagements where I can take a train or drive. They don't like to fly. Why? Because they don't trust planes. There's a fear of flying. There's a lack of trust. I'm not going to put my life into that metal capsule uh, and go that high up in the air. It doesn't seem right or natural. Even my daughter said, it's not natural. Uh, (laughs) And and that's the power of faith. Our faith is a disposition of trust that allows that object to do something for you. It's not what you do for the object. And that's why it is not the faith that should be impressive. It's the object of our faith that is impressive. Major Ian Thomas once said that faith is like a stick shift in the car. You don't get in a car and say, what an amazing stick shift. Uh, but the stick shift does what? It releases the power of the car. It allows you uh, to actually uh, to actually utilize. You're 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 releasing. Our faith in in Christ allows Christ to be Christ in and through us. And I, I think that that is a I think that's a helpful uh, a helpful understanding of what it means to trust. This is exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 14 verse 1. He says, "Let not your heart be troubled." believe in God believe also in me. Jesus was sharing this with the disciples the night of his betrayal. He's getting he's telling them, he's been telling them that he's going to go to the cross, that he's going to have to die. And they are upset and they are troubled. He's not saying believe that I exist. He's right there with them. What is he asking of them? He's telling the disciples that they as they're troubled, to trust him. In fact, what's really profound about that verse is that he says it in in the gospel of John. John records it as him saying it immediately after Peter. He told Peter he would deny him three times. Peter, I tell you this, you're going to deny me three times. And he says, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. I want you to believe in me the same way. That is trust me. Because in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And they like, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. If you've seen me, you have seen the father. What Jesus was saying in that extraordinary moment is that to look at me is to see the father i am god in the flesh and i'm asking you to trust not just in my person but in and to trust in my person is to trust in my plans and my purposes and my purpose is the father's will which is to go to the cross for you faith is trust trust is the act in which we may rely on the faithfulness of another To hold to God is to rely on the fact that God is there for me and to live in that certainty. My favorite verse that defines faith as trust is found in 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him, on Christ Jesus, because He cares for you. We put our faith in Christ because He's a God who loves us and gave Himself for us, revealed Himself to us. faith is trust. Third, faith can't just simply be something that remains in the heart and in the mind, but it is something that must be confessed. Faith is also confession. This is an interesting one because we often don't think of this because we have bought into the lie that faith is a private matter. (laughs) And I just want to, let's just read the verse for with the heart one believes, great, and is justified but with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I, I always like to say that sin leaves the body through the mouth. <laughs> Jesus enters the heart also through the mouth. For the earliest creed for the church is the simple statement, Jesus is Lord. Now, this is what's powerful when we consider this statement that faith as confession Is because in this age of privatization where people like to say, you can believe what you want, just don't push it on me. And Christians buying into the lie that it's about me and Jesus. Remember what I said about the Apostles' Creed is that when we confess the creed, it's a confessional creed. It's something we say out loud as a communal voice, as the body of Christ. We need to understand that faith that believes in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot refuse to become public that we are the only major world religion that exists for the good of those outside of the church, that our dependence in Christ puts Christ in us. And now, because of that, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter five, that we become ambassadors of God, by which God actually makes his appeal through us. I sharing that verse yesterday with the leaders of Door of Hope, as I was talking about the power of personal evangelism, is that we need to understand that God actually makes his appeal through his children as we depend on him. So trust must become confession. Jesus says, what I tell you in private, I want you to yell from the rooftops. It's convicting, really, when you start thinking, because you're like, oh man, I was convicted of dissent. I was iffy on trust and confession is just, you've gone too far, Mr. White. Uh, No, no, I haven't. This is a part of the Christian life. We are to proclaim. We are called to be witnesses. And witnesses both in word and in deed. I think modern Christians were like, it's it's not about preaching the gospel. It's about living the gospel. Listen, you go out and do kind work for your neighbor and mow their lawn and never tell them, that you're inspired by Jesus, they're gonna think, what a nice person that mowed my lawn. And I think I'm not, I'm not downplaying the need to be a people that are the hands and feet of Christ, but we are also the mouthpiece of God. And we need to understand that faith, when it is active in our lives, leads to confession. Where Christian faith exists, there God's people arises and lives in the world for the world. So important for us to understand with the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I love how Scripture doesn't leave us with a truncated vision of faith. Because if you were to just take John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gives his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, if that's the only verse, then you could say, well, it doesn't say anything there about having to be public. Well, that's why we have the whole Bible as a testimony to fill out those words that are so sacred to us as Christians. I think it's dangerous to pull a singular verse out of context, even though this entire message is verses pulled out of context, but nonetheless, (laughs) what I'm trying to show you is that the Bible gives us a very large vision of faith, and it's important that we understand it. Okay, fourth Faith not only is confession, but it is also obedience. Now, I want to share with you as a verse that really struck me. So uh, when I, I, I got saved into the Calvary Chapel movement, and Calvary Chapel movement is all about the New King James Version, so not the nearly inspired version, NIV. Uh, I like the NIV. <laughs> 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 I, I, I actually use the ESV. I think it's a great in-between the two. I, love, I still love the New King James for the language. Uh, but John 3.36 uh, is a reason that I don't read the New King James anymore because it, it, it doesn't translate well. Uh, in, the, in the New King James, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek actually says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Notice this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I think again in Galatians five six for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith. What working through love? We need a faith that actually works. It actually does something. Our dependence in Christ leads to Christ working in and through us. Now, this has been a challenging thing for Christians to get their heads around. Even great founders of the Reformation, Martin Luther, really struggled with, with where do works fit into a vision of grace. And in fact, when he, he, when he uh, was, had this massive uh, experience and conversion, when he it just clicked in, him, in his heart and his mind, uh, the essence of the gospel, that, that his salvation was not based upon what he does for God because he, he always felt condemned even though he was probably the most diligent, zealous man who held tenaciously to the law. Uh, maybe in, the, in, in church history, next to the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul himself said, if the law could have saved someone, I was closer than anyone else. I think Luther was very much in the same boat. But when, when Luther experienced the grace of God, he was so troubled by James, he thought maybe it should be removed from the Bible. <laughs> but when I read... Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, I think it's very clear that he had actually a healthy understanding of a faith that actually works. Because at the close of the Heidelberg Disputation, he says, what then do we do? So if everything we do is marked by mixture, then how can we work without violating grace? And he just and he says, we cast ourselves in total trust upon Jesus that he might work through us. So he, he just played around it a little bit, uh, as we all do. And I think that we need to hold that tension. That a faith that does not produce fruit means that the faith, did not, the faith is not rooted well in our life. We're like trees. Faith is like the root system. If it's rooted in the life-giving Jesus, it will produce fruit. And I think that we need to understand that if our faith is not leading to obedience, but is in continual disobedience, then we need to go back to the basic question, have I really believed in the way that the Bible declares belief? to actually be. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Obviously, that belief leads to activity. Jesus said, follow me. Uh, He never said where he was going, but one thing it does tell us, it may be a journey without a map, but it's not without a leader. And it shows that faith is not static. It's active, and it's moving somewhere. And it requires a life that reflects the object of our faith as we follow hard after him. Joshua Abraham Heschel, the the great Jewish rabbi and writer, one of my favorite writers, uh, referred to uh, the Jewish understanding of faith as what he called a leap of action. Uh, This is why both Paul and James utilize Abraham as the, the point of reference for what Christian faith ought to be. Paul focuses on on Abraham's initial trust in Yahweh. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. James focuses on the outcome of that faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. They're not in contradiction. They are complementary. They're two sides of the same coin. So this is why James could say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I, I like... Adrian Thomas once again used this great illustration on faith uh, that I thought was really helpful. He says, If I go to a gas station in a town I've not been to before, and I need directions to my friend's house, and, and the sermon is probably from the 70s, so this is long, long before we had GPS. Uh, and, and I asked the attendant, How do I get to this address? Do you know where it's at? And the attendant says, Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's here. It, And you go down this street three blocks and you cut to the left block and then you go this way and you'll end up, it's on the right-hand side. He says, as I hear him give me the instructions, I absolutely believe everything he says. I'm a true believer, but have I arrived? Our faith needs to be a faith that actually gets us somewhere, that actually takes us somewhere. It's active. It requires obedience uh, and we are not saved by works, but we are saved by a faith that works. And I think that's important for us to understand. Finally, faith as gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think it's important that we recognize that faith is rather a freedom or a permission. Faith is a response to God's revelation. Abraham believed God, but remember, God spoke to Abraham. He revealed himself. No one can come to faith in Christ unless Christ revealed himself. This is why it's so important that we become a confessing church, because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. But I think that it's good for us to note that our faith in Christ, we believe in him only because he first revealed himself to us. It's what Tozer refers to as as prevenient grace, that every move we make toward God, God is always previous. He's a revealing God. He revealed himself to Moses, and Moses believed him for the most part and did what he said in the burning bush. He reveals himself to us. I think that this, this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 17 so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God is thought and known when in his own freedom he makes himself known. It's exactly what we have in Abraham in Moses and Samuel. Remember when Samuel is laying in his bed and he hears a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, what is it, Lord? And he keeps thinking that it's the man he's working under, the priest, only to discover that it's the voice of God calling him. And he says, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God is a revealing God. And we need to realize that faith itself is a gift. This is why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Another translation for the Greek word founder could be author, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith faith. I love that verse because it reminds me that I need not fear the response of people to my communication on behalf of King Jesus. I can trust that even when I give the worst sermon, which there's plenty of those, uh, today could even be up for grabs. I don't know. It doesn't matter. All I know is that when Jesus is lifted up, People are drawn to Him because it is He who draws, because it is He who makes Himself known to the human heart. And I just want to tell you that if you're someone sitting here today that does not know Jesus Christ personally, I really do believe that when the Spirit reveals to the heart the truth of who Jesus is, it's not about total comprehension. It's about the apprehension of the soul. As Christ draws. We call people to make decisions for Christ, but really what you're doing is you are saying yes to the yes that has already been uttered over you through the work of Christ. It's the power of the gospel. Our faith in Christ is only possible because Christ has actually torn down the middle wall of separation. Sin, it's what the reformers call total depravity. Total depravity hinders our ability to hear the voice of God, hinders our ability to reach God in our own effort. It doesn't mean that everything we do is bad, it just means that everything we do has the line of sin running through it. It means that everything we do is mixture. But God is a God who intervenes in that brokenness. He is the one who is drawing you to Himself. He is the one who gives you the power to live differently. He is the one who saves from beginning to end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's the Gospel. I want to close with the most beautiful verse that I think creates the sum total of the mystery of faith. When Jesus in John chapter 6 verses 28 through 29 said, what must we, when He was asked, "What must we do to do the work of God? How can we get to God in our own efforts?" And Jesus said, "This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent." The work of God always comes back to our continual dependence upon king jesus we believe he's there we lean into him with our whole disposition our whole trust our whole body our whole life it counts on him for everything we confess our faith leads to confession it turns our faith into a public reality it is manifested in obedience and it is recognized as the gift that it is amen